1: CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com cyberwire. Has LockBit 3 been reverse-engineered? A COVID lore contains a punisher hook... Chinese cyber espionage campaign uses compromised USB drives. Lilac Wolverine exploits personal connections for BEC. Killnet claims to have counted coup against the White House. Tim Starks from the Washington Post has the FCC's Huawei restrictions and ponders what Congress might get done before the end of the year. Our guest is Tom Esten from Bishop Fox with a look inside the minds and methods of modern adversaries. And of course, scams, hacks, and other badness surrounding the World Cup. From the Cyberwire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your Cyberwire summary for Wednesday, November 30th, 2022. Sophos this morning reported on its reverse engineering of LockBit 3.0, also known as LockBit Black. It appears that the ransomware's operators are experimenting with making their malware wormable, that is, giving it functionality that would enable it to spread by itself through and across networks. Their research also offers some support to other security experts who've suspected a connection between LockBit and the Black Matter ransomware family. They found a number of similarities which strongly suggest that LockBit 3.0 reuses code from Black Matter, especially in its anti-debugging, obfuscation, API resolution, printer attack, and shadow copy deletion features. There are other similarities as well, and Sophos points out that much of LockBit 3.0's tooling mimics what a legitimate penetration tester might use. In news concerning a different ransomware strain, researchers at CYBEL have an account of an ongoing campaign to distribute the Punisher strain of ransomware. As is so often the case, it depends upon social engineering to gain access to its targets, which in the current outbreak are for the most part concentrated in Chile. The operators are using a phishing website that misrepresents itself as a COVID tracking application. Seibel explains that Punisher demands the equivalent of a thousand U.S. dollars in Bitcoin for decrypting files. This ransomware strain uses a common ransom note which is downloaded from the remote server and then appends content to the ransom note to make it specific to each of its victims. Unlike many other ransomware operations, this one appears to target individuals as opposed to organizations. Victims might find it easier to recover their files from this attack than they would from other more advanced forms of ransomware. Seibel points out that Punisher uses the AES-128 symmetric algorithm. Mandiant reports that a cyber espionage campaign it associates with Chinese intelligence services is currently active against targets in Southeast Asia, particularly in the Philippines. The campaign uses compromised USB drives as a principal attack vector, thus counting on users delivering the malware across whatever protective air gaps may exist. The principal tools it's been seen using are Cloak, Blue Haze, Dark Dew, and NCAT. The campaign may have been in progress since September 2021, and Mandiant reads it as an example of Chinese determination to establish and maintain persistence in targets of interest. Abnormal Security describes a business email compromise gang dubbed Lilac Wolverine that's launching widespread campaigns asking for gift cards. The threat actor begins by compromising a personal email account and copying its contact list. The attackers then set up an email account with the same address as the compromised account, but on a different provider, usually Gmail, Hotmail, or Outlook. They'll then use this account to send emails to the compromised account's contacts. If the recipient is reluctant to send the money, the attackers will explain that the fictional birthday friend also has cancer or just lost loved ones to COVID-19, or both. The researchers note that gift card requests are the most popular form of payment in BEC attacks, despite offering a lower payout per attack. The cyber auxiliaries of the nominally hacktivist group Killnet have claimed to have mounted successful distributed denial-of-service attacks against Starlink, the White House, and a variety of British websites, Trustwave's Spider Labs researchers report. The attacks don't appear to have risen to even the level of a noticeable nuisance. Their coup counting against the White House is instructive in what it suggests about the group's Skids of the World Unite persona, stating... 30 minutes of collective test attack on the White House was very successful. Of course, we wanted to take longer, but did not take into account the intensity of the request filtering system. But the White House was banged up in front of everyone. Nobody else seems to have noticed. Not that much, anyway. Trustwave's assessment concludes, We should expect to see more of these low-skill attacks from Killnet targeting an ever-growing list of targets, that it considers to be in opposition to Russian interests. However, it remains to be seen whether the group can graduate to attacks that cause damage, exfiltrate data, or do more than take down a website for a short period of time. And finally, perhaps you're one of the millions of football fans who've been watching the play in the World Cup. Security firm Group IB is watching too, and they'd like to warn you that the scammers and other cyber criminals out there haven't overlooked the opportunity the FIFA Championship offers them. The come-ons include bogus merchandise sites, offers of tickets, phony job offers allegedly connected with the games in Qatar, and even simple scams by association, exploiting logos and likenesses from the World Cup. Where there's meat, there are also flies, as they say— Group IB's sensible advice is to bring an added measure of common sense and skepticism to your fandom. When the Barkers shout out, Friends, step right up! Well, keep your hands in your pockets and keep on walking. Coming up after the break... Tim Starks from The Washington Post has the FCC's Huawei restrictions and ponders what Congress might get done before the year end. Our guest is Tom Estin from Bishop Fox with a look inside the minds and methods of modern adversaries. Stay with us. team at offensive security and pen testing company Bishop Fox recently partnered with the SANS Technology Institute on a report titled Inside the Minds and Methods of Modern Adversaries. Tom Estin is vice president of consulting at Bishop Fox, and he joins us with insights from the report.
2: Social engineering and uh, phishing uh, were the top attack vectors that ethical hackers use to break into an organization. I mean, we we see this in the news all the time with data breaches and um, attacker techniques. So it was. Really, validation. I think that um, you know this is the most popular way that that attackers are using to break in, but also the way that ethical hackers also break in. So it's a little bit reassuring that as ethical hackers, we are using the same types of attack vectors that our evil counterparts are. Hmm. What other things got your attention? Um, other things include, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily uh, have to do with the ethical, ethical hackers' skill set um, or their background. Um, I We kind of found that... Pen testers and ethical hackers with varied skill sets um, are usually the most successful um, when conducting their attacks. So, um, you know, for example, if you have a, a pen tester that's very focused on application security, they may not be the, the best hacker um, to break into, say, an external network. Uh, but typically, we found through the survey that uh, those varied skills throughout somebody's career really helps them uh, become better hackers, uh, ultimately.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting insight. I mean, I I suppose really when it comes down to it, a lot of this is creative problem solving, right? That's right.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So um, it it is kind of what I see even uh, with our own consultants at Bishop Fox. Um, We really try to uh, look for individuals that have a varied skill set, have a lot of experience in different areas, and not just necessarily that one uh, particular discipline. Um, But also, like you mentioned, Dave, about Problem solving skills. Um, sometimes that really comes out from those non technical experiences as well. So uh, varied backgrounds is is very is a key to being a real successful ethical hacker these days. The one thing I would call out is uh, around detection and response capabilities. Um, you know, we found through our survey that many ethical hackers discover that they are not discovered or they are not detected while they're conducting a penetration test. And that's still very alarming uh, given this day and age where, uh, you know, we would think that most organizations have uh, the capabilities now, either tools, technology, and and people and processes to detect an attack, but we're still finding that uh, a lot of organizations uh, don't have those capabilities and we remain undetected while we're doing a authorized (laughs) penetration test. So it gives a little bit of concern when you're thinking about how many organizations are really ready, um, not just for a pen test, but are they really ready for an attack on their organization? You know, based on the information that you all gathered here, then
1: what are your recommendations for organizations to best protect themselves?
2: Well, uh, for one, uh, don't always rely on on the the hottest tools and uh, you know blinky boxes, right? That are going to uh, solve all your problems. Um, it kind of goes back to what we've always been saying in security is it, it's a combination of people, process, and technology. Um, and to really think about. Um, how you're defending your network. Um, One thing that I like to always recommend is when you're having a pen test done, um, the best pen tests that I've seen are ones that are... uh, more purple team or tabletop type exercises where you're working with the penetration tester um, to test your controls, to test your detection um, instead of just having the pen tester go in you know, blind and let's see what we can find and maybe hope that we can get detected. But really a pen test nowadays should really be combined with the blue team of an organization and really working to understand a detection and of course incident response.
1: That's Tom Esten from Bishop Fox. And it is my pleasure to welcome back to the show Tim Starks. He is the author of the Cybersecurity 202 at the Washington Post. Tim, welcome back. Hey, thanks. Great to be back. A couple interesting stories that uh, you have shared over on the 202 this week. Uh, First off, uh, the FCC has uh, hit Huawei with uh, some restrictions here. What's going on with that one?
0: Yeah, this is uh, the latest step in a a campaign that's, I don't think you can date back to 2012 at this point, uh, where, where you've seen the executive branch take a series of steps aimed at Huawei in particular, but... Yeah, also some other Chinese companies as, as the, what the FCC did here, uh, shows that are basically trying to isolate Huawei, keep it out of U.S., uh, keep it out of the U.S., but also, you know, part of a campaign that involves trying to convince Europe to, to turn them away as well. So this latest step. More, it's about Huawei and ZTE. Those are both those the two big Chinese telecommunications companies. There's also Hytera, uh, which makes digital radios, and then uh, Hikvision and Dahua. If I'm saying that right, that make video surveillance systems. The FCC has said we're going to ban U.S. sales and imports of Huawei of, of these companies' products because of national security concerns. Now. It's, it's a little hard to parse in some ways what, what the significance of this is because it's, again, it's just, it's a, it's a little, it's not quite an, it's not quite a revolutionary step. It's more incremental. If right. you listen to, um, you know, the, the, the members of the committee, of the commission, that is, uh, they say this is a, a unprecedented thing. This is the first time. This is the words of Brendan Carr. The first time in FCC history that we have voted to prohibit the authorization of new equipment based on national security concerns, because there's there's been this thing in the background about what you do with old equipment. And then you know, if you, I, I talked to Dakota Carey over at the Cubs Samos Group, who who had said this also will allow them the ability to revoke previously authorized equipment. Hmm. So that that's potentially important, but again, it, because there have been so many steps that that have been going down this process of of isolating them, there there is also important to note what it can't do, which is you know it's not it's not going to keep these products out of America entirely. It's not going to it's not going to keep it out of the hands of consumers or small business, for instance. I see.
1: Another thing that caught my eye that you wrote about this week was uh, Congress's uh, run towards the end of the year in this lame duck session and some of the potential cyber uh, legislation that may or may not happen. Can you give us a little rundown there?
0: Yeah, you know, I've covered Congress long enough. You know, I've started covering Congress close to full time back in 2003. And I've been more focused on cybersecurity as a topic, but I was at CQ for, gosh, 11 years, Congressional Mm -hmm. Quarterly. It's usually safe to bet, I found, and this is I apologize if this sounds cynical, but it's also just experience, it's usually safe to bet that Congress won't do something. If you're having to make a decision between <laughs> will Congress do something or will they not do something, I tend to err on the side of they, they probably won't. But there are, there are a few things that they're going to get done here toward the, toward the end of this lame duck session that looks like pretty solid chances that they're going to happen. You know, there's a State Department Bureau of Cyberspace and Digital Policy now. But if you follow the the, the State Department's handling of this office, you know, th- there was an office in the Obama administration. Then Trump got rid of it. Then Trump created his own new idea for it. And then he changed that, too. And then Biden came in with his own idea. So what Congress has been trying to do is is cut out that, that back and forth process of, you know, we're constantly dealing with this office is being in transition all the time and not sure what it is. Essentially, codify the office now so that it doesn't keep changing between administration and administration, which is you know somewhat significant. There are other things that they might do, like the um, yeah, there was a bit of push to to make sure that the the, the director of CISA has a has a, a five year term, which means mm-hmm. that they would go across at least more than one presidential term. You know, the idea is to keep keep that office uh, nonpartisan, which is which is how it's been. There's are some other things that are harder to p- predict, um, and then there's some things that are just probably not going to happen. And if you look at the significance of the things that are not going to happen, those are some of the more big ideas. Uh, things like creating a, a list of the most important critical infrastructure we have in our country, that if they were damaged or hurt or, or attacked in some way by cyber attacks, that it would cause this massive systemic harm to national security, uh, the economy, public safety create a list of those things, and also give incentives to those companies to take better care of those systems, and at least explore the idea of giving them some some kind of uh, requirements uh, that they must do these things. Um, that has gotten, as you might expect, gotten them into some, some trouble with business groups, industry groups like the Chamber of Commerce and, and a variety of others who just think that this is a bad idea. They also point out the fact that the administration has been working on at least the the categorization of this infrastructure. But, you know, they also are not probably not so crazy about the idea that they might be forced to do something.
1: Hmm. Is it safe to say that cybersecurity remains one of those rare things that that sees bipartisan support that people seem to to be in on from
0: both sides? It's feeling less and less like that to me over time. It's certainly an area that is more more agreeable to both parties than, uh, say, you know, immigration or or some of the other big topics, the healthcare, what you name it. Right. I think that cyber is still less partisan than those things, but I think it's getting more partisan. I think you can see the roots of that that started a little after the last the last big presidential race in twenty sixteen. Obviously, twenty twenty happened, but I'm talking about the, the where, where there was an actual cybersecurity ramification to that election. You know, we started seeing a breakdown of of things on a partisan lines about what kind of protections we should be offering for election security. And then I think because the Biden administration has pushed a more regulatory approach than any prior administration, that has caused some heartburn with Republicans who tend to not like regulation uh, in in situations that, that are economic. And Democrats have tried to push some of those things on the Hill, too, to make things just a little bit more mandatory or regulatory you know, we did get a significant piece of legislation this year. Perhaps the most significant piece of legislation Congress has ever passed. That, that does require critical infrastructure owners to report when they've suffered a major incident. They must report that to CISA. It'll be a few years before that becomes uh, implemented, and they must they must report when they give when they make ransomware payments. That's significant. That is, a, that is a pretty big deal, yeah. but if you look at what the way this started and how strict that was when, when Democrats were first proposing it and how it ended up, just in terms of what the enforcement mechanisms would be, I think they've, they're significantly weaker than, than the enforcement mechanisms that, that everybody had in mind originally. It got watered down, I would say, it's fair to say. It, it's still significant. It just, it just still points to the fact that while there was a bipartisan agreement on the final bill, it required Democrats conceding an awful lot.
1: Yeah. I think it's safe to say that uh, your your cynicism when it comes to Congress is uh, evidence-based, right?
0: <laughs> I try not to be cynical. I'm always impressed I know, I, when they do get stuff done, right? Like I'm always like, the, "Good job yeah. Congress."
1: <laughs> I am the same, <laughs> I feel like I'm, yeah,
0: pat them on the head, right? <laughs> yeah, it's like I feel like I'm, it's a little infantilizing them, I guess, but <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> But I'm still I, it's impressive when things get done because it is difficult to get things done, right? I mean, it's yeah, very absolutely. difficult. It's, the founders set up our country to be that way to a certain degree and then certain things we've done uh have made that worse. Uh, so, you know, whether you, however you feel about democracy, I'm just, uh, you know, predicting things. You're like, eh, predict, predict that it probably won't happen. You'll be on safe ground. Predict that it will happen. <laughs> you might be disappointed.
1: That's right. When all else fails, lower your standards, and you won't be disappointed. <laughs> all right. Tim Starks is the author of the Cybersecurity 202 at the Washington Post. Tim, thanks so much for joining us. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The CyberWire Podcast is a production of N2K Networks. Proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Puru Prakash, Liz Irvin, Rachel Gelfand, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Maria Varmatsis, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Catherine Murphy. Janine Daly, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilphy, Simone Petrella, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.